Welcome to Seeds, a show where we talk about purpose with inspiring people making a positive impact with their lives. We are particularly interested in social enterprises and entrepreneurs. We will listen to them reflect on their journeys and take time to dig deeper in order to better understand what really motivates their choices. When you start talking with Martin Large about community ownership of land, it pays to listen closely to what he has to say. Martin is a former academic, business consultant, a Quaker, and a publisher of Hawthorne Press. He's also the founder of the UK Biodynamic Land Trust and a director of Stroud Commonwealth, which enables cooperative, cultural, and social businesses, such as community land trusts. He's the author of Social Ecology, a book which came out in 1981, and his most recent book is titled Commonwealth from 2010. This is Stephen Moe, and you're listening to Seeds. Here's an excerpt from the interview with Martin. What is it? Can you unpack a little bit? What are you meaning when you say the word commonwealth? That, that's a big question. We talk about the commons of land, natural commons, land, air, water, um, genetic inheritance. We, we talk about the socially created commons of language, of culture, open source software like Linux. So commonwealth has a, has a bit of mm. the commons there. There's a, a wonderful old word called Commonweal, W-E-A-L. Have you, have you come across that? I don't think I have, no. Commonweal, it's kind of the original word, hmm. and it means well-being, happiness, prosperity, um, health, hmm. um, r- real wealth. John Ruskin once said, there's no wealth but life. Hmm. And, and, and in Bradford, in Yorkshire, in, in, in 1891... They founded the Independent, so Independent Labour Party, and their motto were, was, there is no wealth but commonwealth. And I think they meant common ownership of the means of production. Right. So it's got all these multiple layered meanings. In the next episode, we're going to be speaking with Emmeline Pat Dostrom, who has worked for many years in the space industry. So in that conversation, we talk about things on this planet, but we also go far, far off it as well. And it's a really fascinating conversation. She's one of the first Edmund Hillary Fellows to arrive in New Zealand on a special global impact visa. If you don't want to miss out on that and upcoming episodes, then hit subscribe. And thank you to those who continue to tell others about this podcast. Now let's get into the conversation with Martin. Well, it's a pleasure to welcome Martin Large from Stroud Commonwealth. Thank you for joining me today. It's a pleasure to be in New Zealand. I'm on a steep learning curve. And we've been able to connect because you're in Christchurch for how many days? Literally just one day. One day. Yeah. Well, thank you very much for spending the time with me. Um, What we do on this podcast is talk a lot about purpose and what people do and why they do it. But in order to understand that, I find it's quite helpful to go back to the beginning of people's lives and understand a little bit about their history and where they're from. So if we could go back to your childhood and where did you grow up? Imagine the Yorkshire Dales of James Herriot's All Things Great and Small. I don't know if you've read the books or seen the films. Mm. So I was brought up on a Yorkshire Dales hill farm, um, 250 sheep, 25 dairy cows, mucking out the cow shed at age 10. And um, I'm now concerned with enabling social business development and cooperative development and also community land trust development. Mm. And I learned about cooperation and, and land rights as a boy in the Yorkshire Dales. 
Wow. So there's a real history there, isn't there, of, uh, uh, you know, from your childhood? It, there, 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 there is a story. I, I, I still don't know who owns the fell um, on which our 250 of the sheep grazed. Twice a year, all the farmers from the valley and their dogs <laughs> and their guns made sure that, that no farmer had more than their quota of sheep. They were called sheep gates or sheep walks. So we used to walk in a line of farmers across the fell, making sure the sheep were where they belonged. So, and that, that was land rights. So if farmers put too many f- sheep on the fell, they, they were reprimanded or they were not bought drinks at the pub. Right. <laughs> so that was my introduction to, to, to land rights. And, and there, there were rather obscure rituals left over from the, the, the Middle Ages called the court leet, where, where the, the rights were sort of reaffirmed each year. Wow. So that, that was land rights. And, and the, the cooperation story is that we cooperated about sharing bulls, sharing, sharing tractors, sharing horses, you know, and sharing sheep dipping arrangements. So that, you know, there was a whole cooperative web. And I can remember a neighboring farmer who had one eye. His dog had one leg, uh, and he had a limp. And he was talking with my dad. I was about 10. And, and our neighboring farmer came to borrow something. So Matt Sayer said, I wonder what he's going to borrow this time, Tommy, to my dad. Anyway, it was a saw bench. And as he was disappearing down the, the track with a saw bench, he said, E by gum. Tommy, that that man would borrow his coffin when he died. <laughs> so that web of cooperation led to, you know, real cooperatives. So mm. you've heard of Wallace and Gromit? Mm. Yep. Okay, so Wallace and Gromit eat Wensleydale cheese. They do, yes. So when, when the railway line stopped up, up the dale, up Wensleydale, a famous dalesman called Kit Calvert started up Wensleydale Cooperative to make cheese. Hmm. This is the late 40s. Hmm. So now it's a huge uh, business, hmm. Wensleydale Creamery. Hmm. So it's that sort of, you know, way of life. Hmm. So that was, it was kind of part of your childhood, it sounds like, that, that what you're doing now, looking back, you can see the roots. Absolutely. So yeah. I recently had to give a keynote speech in Newcastle-upon-Tyne for a national cooperative conference. And it's a great, great title. It was called The Cooperative Commonwealth. And so I walked down memory lane in Newcastle. There was the People's Theatre, which is a cooperatively owned theatre. There was the Workers' Educational Association. There was the Federation Brewery, a cooperative brewery that brewed fantastic beer for all the working men's clubs, which were mutuals. Mm. And, and of course, there was a huge cooperative retail society and there were women's groups. You, You know, there's a whole cooperative commonwealth at that time which it, during the 19th century and early 20th century, oh yes, the banks, mutuals, trustee mm. savings banks, and a whole web of um, wonderful mutual aid. Um, and, and um, you know, that, that pushed back the laissez-faire liberal capitalism mm. in the 19th century. Mm. And, and, and um, you know, na- now, of course, our challenge is how can we recreate this this form of cooperative commonwealth. Mm. I'm really interested in that term, that word commonwealth, and I think we're going to come back to it a little bit later. Right. But before we get into that, I'd love to understand a bit more about you as a, as a child or you know, as a teenager. Did you know what you wanted to do? I can remember my grandfather 
who is a geneticist, a professor, talking about what would happen in a nuclear war. I think that there would be rats and groundsel left. You know, he used to get up on soapboxes and talk, talk about this. He was a member of the Campaign for Nuclear Disarmament. And as a, as a young farmer, we, we nearly had to pour milk down the drain that was contaminated from the Windscale Fire mm. in 1957, Strontium-90 and all that stuff. Mm. And so I remember reading a book called Brighter Than a Thousand Suns about how they made the atom bomb, I think age of 12, and thought um, our know-how has exceeded our know-why. So what's all the meaning of this and how socially, politically and economically can we, can we um, develop a wiser, you know, more environmentally um, sustainable and, and peaceful society? I come from a Quaker background and, and, and we've always had a concern for peace. Mm. So that inclined me towards the social sciences. And you can trace that back to age 12, reading that book? That's right. right. Yeah. And, and this experience, you know, mm. with, with, with the nuclear. And then at the age of um, 18, um, after school, national service in the army had finished a, f a few years beforehand. Mm. But I strongly wanted to volunteer and serve the, serve the community. And so I joined voluntary service overseas, which mm. is kind of like the Peace Corps, mm. and went, of all places, to Thailand teaching mm. English, as one does, and learning Thai, because nobody spoke English in those days. Mm. Huge American air base was down the coast at Satahip, Utapau. And, you know, if you, if you had a coffee on the main street, main, main road going down from Bangkok to Satahip, Utapau, there were uh, lorries full of coffins going one way, mm. American soldiers, and bombs going the other, mm. day and night bombing of Vietnam. And, and so, mm. so what you know, year are we talking about? 1966, seven, mm. long time ago. Yeah, yeah. And and so a concern for peace was reinforced then. And so when I came back to university, I studied social anthropology mm. as a way of understanding different, you know, different lenses people have, mm. how, and different ways of making me meaning and mm. what can we learn from different societies mm. and just that experience of going overseas going to thailand that that's quite a contrast from where you'd been that's right how did you end up being i guess assigned to thailand or what did you think when you saw that on the letter saying congratulations here's your destination or how did that work it was a relief because originally um i I, I was allocated to go to southern Rhodesia. Okay. Can you imagine? To I think the a, a monastery, a, a school run by the White Fathers mm -hmm. in the middle of nowhere in in Rhodesia, mm -hmm. and Ian Smith came along and declared uh, de independence from Britain, UDI, and so we couldn't go to Rhodesia. So being rerouted to Thailand was like being sent to Shangri-La. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I'd always dreamed of, you know, the the the, the East, particularly Buddhism, mm. and, and, and there it was. Mm. So it was a great experience for you to be able to go at yes, that time. Absolutely. But that it sounds like, I mean, mid-1960s, Vietnam is going on. Yes. Um, what was that like being so close? Oh, it was, it was very, it was fascinating, you know, meeting American soldiers, meeting American aid officials, you know, a whole wave of people. And, um, yeah, it was, it was, 
very difficult to understand what was going on. Mm. You know, novels like Catch-22 were quite explanatory. Mm. And there's a whole web of the, the CIA um, that were working with the mafia to, to uh, get inf- information, of course, intelligence, but also smuggling drugs. Mm. This whole, it was a very confusing web of influence. Mm. Shanghai Shek's shoulder soldiers, apparent aid organizations like Tom Dooley's hospitals, which may well have been a fr- an intelligence front. Mm. You know, it's really difficult to work out what was going going on, mm. and that's why I did anthropology. Right. Because if you can imagine also that there was a cultural revolution going on, mm. the 1960s cultural revolution. Mm-hmm. And I can remember with a friend called Martin, who then became a journalist for the Financial Times. I can remember us rushing in a bazaar in Penang and listening to, this is, I think, um, April 1967, listening to Sergeant Pepper's Lonely Hearts Band, right. it, it, you know, on the headphones in yeah. Penang Market. You know, so yeah, it was an amazingly um, yeah, revolutionary time. Mm. And it sounds like that really sparked your interest in what you would then go on to study. Is that right? That's right. Yes, mm. indeed. And and when when you came back, yeah, I guess talk us through the next steps or what was it that happened next? Well, University of Sussex, and and I did two years of anthropology, and then I took time out to work with with adults and children with special needs, and I learnt more about human beings and humanity. Mm and human differences and, and, uh, and strengths and more about myself in that year, I think, than I have ever done as an academic. Mm, interesting. Let's just break that down a little bit. What were some of the things that you were learning in that time? Well, I can remember sitting on a bus t- taking a group of six um, people um, to Aberdeen, it was, in nor- north of Scotland. Mm. And th- this was about a, a, a month in, into, my, um, into, into the year and um, just enjoying all their human individuality and particularities and all the classifications, mm. you know, all these lenses just dropped away. Mm. I still remember that, that moment. Mm. And what was, it that you had, what was it that you had brought to the table, I guess, in terms of the lenses? Had you had some assumptions before that moment? Um, oh, yes, yes, you know, these are handicapped people. Mm rather than human beings flourishing in their own right. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it sounds like it was a great year to uh, to learn a lot of different things. It was. Yeah. And and it was run by a Rudolf Steiner connected movement called the Campill movement which r- run villages and special needs schools o- over the world the world. So that was very interesting as well that the way they understood mm. the mission of 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 these um people to invite us to <clears throat> cultivate our empathy and understanding and, and humanity. Mm-hmm. And what happened next for you? I finished my degree and then um, I worked in education and then management development, organization development with the a, with a Dutch Organization Development Institute, helping companies, corporations, communities, government develop. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. And was that based in the UK or? UK and Holland. It mm-hmm. was originally Dutch. Um, and, um, and we called ourselves Social Ecology Associates. Okay. So we, we drew on um, the, the theory from the Tavistock Institute about social ecology, the human interface with society. 
and the interaction and, and how, how can we develop a more adaptive organization groups society. Mm. Mm. And, and I, I wrote a book called Social Ecology based on that. Mm. It's kind of linked with organization behavior now. Mm. But I, I had a, a fascinating conversation in a pub in London at a research conference in 1990, 1991, where I was giving a paper on social ecology in connection with an Australian social psychologist called Fred Emery, who worked at the Tavistock and who coined the term social ecology. And these Australians from the University of Western Sydney were, were wondering what to call their department. And I was banging on about social ecology. And I said, don't you remember Fred Emery? And, and, uh, and so they, they called their department as a result, partly as a result of that conversation, um, the Department of Social Ecology. Hmm. And I'm, I'm, when I leave Christchurch, I'm going to meet up with the, the founding Emer emeritus professor, Bill. Um, and he, he, um, he was one of the co-authors of a, of a book that I published. I, I run, also run Hawthorne Press Limited, so I'm a publisher. So I, I published their book. Mm. And, and it's the subtitle of social, their, their book, Social Ecology, is Applying so Ecological Understanding to Our Lives. Mm. So it's a multidisciplinary education, land rights, facilitation, um, ecology, geography, spirituality. Mm -hmm. You know, it's wonderful, isn't it? Yeah. Is it re really? It's really mixing up a lot of different categories. Isn't yeah. It? So yeah. it's a kind of degree I'd have loved to have done as yeah. an undergraduate you know, <laughs> or, or as a postgraduate. Yeah. Yeah. So just before we get into those sorts of topics, yes. um, the first book that you published was that early 1980s, I think? Early 1980s, that's yeah, right. Yeah. Yes. And, and did that sort of take you down, a, I guess, an academic route as well, or were you involved in teaching at that time? Or? Yeah, when I left the consultancy, mm -hmm. uh, I was being that by then being brought up by four children. I see. <laughs> <laughs> two boys and two girls. Um, and um, so I, I then taught in... The, um, the local higher education college, mm -hmm. um, organizational behavior, management, that, that sort of area, yeah. yes. Yeah. And in terms of Hawthorne Press, when did that come about? Uh, the, uh, the early 80s. Okay. So all our friends, and, and um, I wrote a book on the effects of television on children. Mm -hmm. That got very widely reviewed, and um, because it was a real issue then. I think it still is with the amount of time children, uh, very young children particularly, mm. spend on the screen. Yeah. It's a huge issue rather than real experience. Mm. It's expanded beyond television to so many other sources, oh isn't it? <laughs> oh, my goodness. It's so complicated and so, you know, it's such a challenging question. Mm. Um, I've long since um, not been able to catch up mm. with, with, you know, with the research and the effects. It's quite, you know, it's quite, yeah. And thank goodness my children are now, you know, in their thirties, they've moved. They've moved beyond that stage. <laughs> yeah, that's right. So yeah, yeah. So so you, so you set that yeah, up and in so order to publish books that, that you were interested in. Well, that's right. And then and then people said, well, what do we do instead of watching television? So we started publishing craft books and oh. celebrating festivals books, and, mm. and they went really well. Mm. Oh, so did that become almost a full time occupation that you were involved not, in? Or? Not really. It just mm. sort of grew like topsy on the sidelines. Yeah, you know, it's a good administrator. Good, good web web of authors, and, and I, I focused on on the lecturing. Right. Yeah. And what were the topics you were lecturing on? 
yeah, it's organizational behavior, management, those sorts of things. Mm-hmm. But, I, but I picked up all the things that um, were really interesting um, that other people wouldn't touch, like women's development. Mm. You can imagine in the early 80s, um, women in management, women's development was, um, you know, a minority interest. Mm-hmm. And a lot, lot of the, um, some of the women lecturers wouldn't touch it because it might hurt their careers. It was that bad. Mm. Anyway, so um, I, I, I organized some women trainers to run some women in ma- women's development workshops. And the place was absolutely crowded out. Mm. And so that led on to, it, to an interest in women and men's development. Um, and um, as a result of that, as Hawthorne Press, we've published a, a world leader in women's development. Mm. So we're women's development program with a consultancy that facilitates that mm. in, I think, 14 languages, um, going into Japanese, we hope, mm. soon, which is a big challenge. Mm. It's in Arabic. It's, it's delivered by the British Council in eight Arab countries. Mm. If you can imagine a women's development program in, in Saudi Arabia. Yeah. The, yeah. I think the, the pilot course, one, one of the participants was, was a woman airline pilot. She could, she could fly a plane, but she couldn't drive a car. Hmm. So the first time I, I knew about the inklings of Arab Spring, it was you know, because we were running these women's development programs all over yeah. the Middle East. Yeah, and it sounds like the, the press, the Hawthorne Press, was a, a really amazing way to meet interesting people That's doing r- interesting things. Yes, yeah, and and people asking questions as well. Mm. You know, so, so I think what what a key nugget is being alert to the questions people are asking you. Mm. So what does that involve? How do you get to that place? Being very open and listening. Like this morning, I was with Bailey Perriman, mm-hmm. whom you've interviewed, mm-hmm. yes. and he was asking some really good questions. Mm. And I asked him the question: Well, what's trying to happen here? I think it was in relationships to to the future of the red zone. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I don't think I can say anything else, but mm. you know. And, and I think one of his questions was, "How how can we free up the spirit here?" Mm. And I thought that was a really profound question. Mm. So when I meet somebody, I, I often ask, "What's their question?" Right. And that's I think akin to what you mean by by what's what's their purpose. Mm. Mm. You know, what's their question, mm. and where's their question leading them? Mm. Yeah, and I guess it's uh, the older I get, you know, as an elder, I get more and more interested in that. Mm. So, do you view your role now as helping people to understand what their questions are? A, a bit, if 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 there's space, mm. and, and if if that's what they want. Mm. So, like, I'm going, you know, when I leave here, I'm going to Sydney, and I'll be running a day workshop, and we'll start with people's burning questions, and I hope they go away with one action research question mm, mm. one of the things i love about this podcast is that i'm able to ask those questions and get a little bit deeper than normally is possible yes and i think in our modern current culture we all have lots of things to say and there's lots of one-sided conversations even when there's two people talking <laughs> yes. and that i've got something to say please stop talking i want to say it and then wait, I have some, the other person saying, well, I have something to say as well. But there's not the true listening going, I've heard what you've said, I've reflected on it, I disagree or I agree. And having true conversation is an art, I think, that we're maybe losing. 
It is. Mm. Like, so it's like two, you described sort of serial monologues, haven't mm. you, actually? Mm. Well, that's right, yeah. Yeah, I have something to say, and now it's your turn. Now it's my turn. Yes. It's, not, it's not truly getting deeper, but I think if you can develop that skill of listening and actually probing together, you'll get to a deeper place. Yes, mm. yes. And, and, and with authors or, or with, as a facilitator, if you're trying to create a design a process for, for a group, then that dialogue is mm. absolutely central, isn't it? Mm. To co-create mm. the yeah. process and create something different. Mm. Yeah, that's good. So we've talked a little bit about your childhood and those origins, you know, in the farming community. Yes. And then going to Thailand and quite an amazing experience to be there in the mid-60s when Vietnam is going on and then mm. coming back and studying and being involved in setting up the Hassan Press. And I just want to talk a little bit about that word commonwealth. Mm. Um, can you tell us what you mean by that term? Because I think particularly for the listeners who are in, you know, in, in places that are maybe former colonies or associated with the UK, the word commonwealth maybe has that sort of connotation, whereas for US listeners, it won't have that meaning, yes. you know. Um, but what is it? Can you unpack a little bit? What are you meaning when you say the word commonwealth? That, that's a big question. We talk about the commons of land, natural commons, land, air, water, um, genetic inheritance. We, we talk about the socially created commons of language, of culture, open source software like Linux. Um, so commonwealth has a, has a bit of... Mm. The commons there. There's a, a wonderful old word called commonweal, W-E-A-L. Have you, have you come across that? I don't think I have, no. Commonweal, it's kind of the original word, mm. and it means well-being, happiness, prosperity, um, health, mm. um, r real wealth. John Ruskin once said, there's no wealth but life. Mm. And, and, and in Bradford, in Yorkshire, in, in in 1891, they founded the independent, so independent Labour Party, and their motto were, was, there is no wealth but commonwealth. And I think they meant common ownership of the means of production. Right. So it's got all these multiple layered meanings. Now, Arnold Toynbee used the word commonwealth when he was at the Royal Institute for International Affairs in London, I think in the late 40s, to in to, as, a, as, a, as a sort of respectable way of Britain offloading its colonies. Right, yes. The Commonwealth. <laughs> yes. So that's what people mostly understand. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But there's an old, the old sense of the word was the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania, mm. not the state, mm. which is a political entity, but Commonwealth. That means, you know, our land, our mm. country, our people, our culture, our, our traditions. Mm. You know, it's, it's, it's much more than money, you know, cash. The Commonwealth of Canada, the Commonwealth, that's all one word. Mm. Um, and and in, in Britain, of course, we got rid of the king. And one of my ancestors, I think, was one of the, the, the 40 people to sign King Charles I's death warrant. It's right. a family tradition. <laughs> We've never had much diplomacy intact. <laughs> and, and so, the, the, you know, the interregnum was called the Commonwealth. Not the Republic, but the Commonwealth. So I love this word. Mm. And you can use the either two words, the Commonwealth, or this old world word, commonweal. Commonweal, right. Or, or, or just one word, commonwealth. And so if you look at, is it Roger Nomics and Ruthanasia mm -hmm. here? Mm -hmm. The neoliberal 
model, the market fundamentalist model. Yeah. They say there's nothing except the market. Mm. You know, they call Profit. it the, mar the yeah. markets, you know. Okay. Mm. And, and so I, I like to think that um, we're, we can co-create a commonwealth society as an alternative mm. in all sorts of different ways. Mm. So when you use the term commonwealth, it's a much richer meaning, yeah. I think. That's what I'm getting a sense of. It's not just land. It's not just money. It's, it's also um, the skills of people and having people doing jobs that they love and can contribute to. There's, it's, it's quite a rich term in the way that you're using it. Absolutely. And it's the outcome of all sorts of activities. Mm. However, specifically, in terms of the commons... I mean, in, in New Zealand, you've got what wonderful land, haven't you? Mm, mm. And a lot of it's government-owned, pub publicly owned. You, you know, you've got air, water. You know, one, you know, wonderful heritage. Mm. The, the the challenge there is to perhaps develop commons bodies, commons juridic jurisdictions, so civil society and the community, independently of government, autonomously mm. from government, mm. with a clear jurisdiction can care for those commons mm. a bit like mm. is it Q qe2 mm -hmm. that, yep. that, that's an example of a, of a, a legal jurisdiction okay i co-presented at the house of landlords the house of lords in london right uh, at an occupy event mm -hmm. which is great fun um with a, a, a economist from pennsylvania james quilligan who advised pierre trudeau uh, the prime minister of canada and and, and the un and he was proposing commons governance for all the Great Lakes. So the Great Lakes are suffering pollution mm. and, and, and lots of problems. Yeah. And, and there's state failure and market failure. You know, corporations dumping in it and mm. all sorts of stuff like that. Uh, and not cooperating together to, to preserve the, the Great Lakes. Mm. And the states and you know, the state jurisdictions around are not as well. So he's got this big, big idea mm. for... for and, and I thought that was, you know, fascinating. Mm. So it's both, the, you know, the commons linking with Commonwealth can be very small. Mm. Like in Stroud, we've got several hundred hectares of, it's called Rodborough and Minchinhampton Common. Okay, it's a bundle of rights. The, the freehold is owned by the National Trust, which itself is a, a land trust, with three million members, founded by Octavia Hill, the student of John Ruskin. They own, I don't know, several hundred stately homes, preserving that heritage, 1,500 farms, lots of coastline. Wonderful. And so they own the freehold of Minchinhampton and Rodborough Common. Mm. Uh, we can walk anywhere on it. We can pick mushrooms. We can pick fruit. We can walk our dogs. If you're a commoner, that's a sort of kind of a, a, a legal title, you can graze so many cows, right. on, you know, between spring and and you can you can have a circus there if you get permission from the the commoners association. Mm. Uh, you can play golf there, mm. much to the consternation of my our American visitors. You know, also it's multi. It's a bundle of rights. It's like a bundle of sticks, mm. and that's our commons. Mm. Okay, it's, isn't that? Mm. It's 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 um, it's self organizing. Mm. So there's a group of people with with rules and and a geographical area shared commons. Mm. So so. So that's how it works. Yeah. And, and this is not fluffy stuff. That uh, Neoliberal economics loves this myth called the tragedy of the commons. 
Have you heard of that? Mm, I personally haven't, no. But no, no. Well, a, a guy called Hardin wrote this essay called The Tragedy of the Commons. He said that the commons of land and, you know, can't be looked after by people because farmers inevitably will put more sheep onto it or more cows on it and the commons will then collapse. Therefore, the land needs enclosing and improving and privatizing because private ownership is a better way of looking after the commons. I see. Mm. Yeah, that, yeah, that's the yeah. argument. Sure. Yeah, yeah. So it's a very powerful argument. Mm. I mean, I, w- I would argue there's a tragedy of the market as well, mm. that actually, you know, the market is... So, so um, the only woman economist ever to win the Nobel Prize for economics, which is not a proper Nobel Prize because it's run by... Uh, Swedish banks, actually, mm. um, and uh, she she did her research on the commons, mm. and she, so she you know Swiss farmers were were stewarding through a commons association their high pastures in the Alps for you know, seven hundred years, very happily, or mm. groups of fishermen in the Indian Ocean. So she showed that the commons governance is is long and enduring. Mm. If the right, if there are a right bunch of rules mm. and, and, and the right people, an appropriate scale. Mm. So that that's an extraordinarily important piece of research because it says we've got the market, we've got the state, and we've got the commons. Mm. I see. You know, in New Zealand, you may or may not have heard of this, but uh, about a year and a half ago, maybe two years ago, there was a campaign for New Zealanders to buy a beach that had come up for sale. Mm. And so it was, it was kind of like a crowdfunding campaign where people could put in $5, $20, you know, $10,000, and they raised enough money to then buy that strip of beach. Um, so I guess, in a way, what I'm saying is that there's, in New Zealand, I think there is a, a feeling that sometimes it's good that a, a place doesn't fall into private ownership, that it's actually important to keep it for that common good. Yes, it's a, it's a great example. And, and the Land Reform Act of Scotland, 2002, has provided a whole process for that you know, mm. community right to buy mm. of, of, of that sort of thing. And the Highlands of Scotland, two-thirds of it are owned by 200 people. Mm. So democracy can't handle that kind of inequality. So they've got a whole process of a, a land fund and technical assistance mm. to help with that process. Mm. However, you could argue that it's up to our political system to make sure that land does not become a commodity to be bought sold, uh, and sold on the market. Because, you know, this chair has a shelf life, doesn't it? Mm. Our clothes wear out. But as Winston Churchill said, land is the mother of all monopolies. And, and that needs political control um, and rights through, you know, planning and, and through careful regulation. Mm. And, and, I, and I think that it's a challenge for governments now, for example, the New Zealand government, to, to actually step up to the plate and, and enable a lot of your public land to be protected in various forms of commons governances. Because mm. it could be that the people of a region are much better custodians. And I think your Maori traditions, you know, if you look after the land, it will look after you. Mm. If you look after the water, it'll look after you. I think your Maori traditions of customary land ownership, mm. land trusteeship and custodianship, mm. kind of give you a um, 
a, a, a special foundation mm. for very constructive work, mm. and, and you could show the way mm. in developing commons commons governance. Mm. I'm glad you've picked up on that because it's been a relatively brief visit, but I think you're right, and I think maybe in the past there hasn't been that appreciation of what the Maori culture can bring to the table in terms of these concepts. But if you look at it in a bit more depth, you know, the idea of whanau and family and working together, there's so many, there's such richness there that I think uh, is maybe not as known as it could be. Yes. And, and you're right, it could actually be the foundation for something that provides a, a base to build on and become a you know, world-leading example of this. Yeah, for example, here in Christchurch, you, you've got the red zone, mm-hmm. haven't you? Is that a, a thousand acres of, is it bare land now? Yeah, most of it, I think, is now bare land. I yeah. think they've taken, you know, taken down the houses. I don't know the exact number, yeah. but it's a big space, yeah. And I know there may be grievances around former homeowners there, mm-hmm. you know, or, or, you know, legal things to settle. There, there will be Maori connections with that land, mm-hmm. definitely, yep. that probably go back to Waitangi, mm. um, you know, customary things that are very difficult for um, English common law mm. to understand. Mm-hmm. You know, you put a fence around something, enclose it, get the legal title, it's yours, isn't it? Mm. Absolute ownership. Mm. So that's a, that's a huge challenge to, to the city of Christchurch, mm. in fact, the New Zealand government, to say, well... Actually, we could we could make a, a commons jurisdiction of this land, put mm. this into a say a community land trust, mm. and and we could have a participative land design of this. So mm. so all this this you know what goes where and how the land will be used. Can Canterbury sorry can Christchurch feed itself? Mm. Uh, and and you know what cultural facilities, what community facilities, mm. you know what 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 kind of businesses. What you know? What's appropriate here, mm. given the, the, the geological structure of that land? Mm. Um, so, land use plan and design for it, and 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 then the land trust facilitates uh, the flourishing of that land because mm. it's been empty for eight years, hasn't mm. it? Mm. But the, the block—I can understand the blockages because what I'm talking about goes against this notion of absolute ownership of land. That's mm. mine. I've got the title to it, mm. doesn't it? Mm. It does, yeah. So inviting you to consider how that red zone can be put into a commons, because mm. the, the public sector owns it already, doesn't it? Mm. It's mm. been paid for. So, so that, that would be a, a huge, generous act of cultural, economic, and political leadership. I mean, just, term, just think economically in terms of jobs. I, I didn't tell you, but... I left, I left my university teaching because the world was changing far too much. And, and the world was changing so much, it was, it was, the, the university just wouldn't allow me to teach what was really happening. And, and so um, we developed Stroud Commonwealth to develop community land trusts and um, social businesses as, as part of the piece. Mm. And so one community land trust we developed was for, for farms, so that's been not just we did the community land trust for housing, and there are now 225 community land trusts throughout England and Wales. Mm. From a standing start of, we got going six exemplars. Mm. This was a national demonstration project mm. um, with housing trust people and finance people, legal people, government people. You know, mm. and now it's a, a community land trust enabling 
But anyway, so, so when did Stroud Commonwealth start? Was that 1999? 1999. Okay. And and we we'd started Stroud Community Supported Agriculture, Stroud Community Farm, mm -hmm. as one as one of the pioneer community supported agriculture farms, mm -hmm. and, and that's re a really important exemplar because it it's totally counter to your supermarkets mm. that deliver food, push it out. That's a push system if you like. Ours is a pull system, so you've got committed consumers negotiating with farmers each year about what should be grown and, and committed consumers paying either monthly or yearly for their veg and right. meat. That's a, so it's a pull system, quite different. Mm. Anyway, once we set that, and that's success, successful, I don't know, it's got 290 members and became an exemplar for training other people how to do it. Mm. We had a girl from South Dakota turn up to learn how to do it, that was good. Mm. Um, and um, we, we, the question how to secure land came up. So we got some finance to run a national community farmland trust project. So we, we, we did this Ford Hall Farm community buyout in 2004, five, mm -hmm. to young tenant farmers. They, they were, the estate, the owner was selling the land from under them. And we worked with them. We set up a community cooperative, charitable. We raised eight eight hundred and fifty thousand. This was before crowdfunding, right? Right. An old cooperative model. You mm. know, the technology wasn't quite there. With eight thousand members, and we, we formed a, a community land trust. Mm. Uh, Prunella Scales mm -hmm. uh, endorsed it all. You mm -hmm. know, various people endorsed it all. So mm -hmm. it went around the world as, as mm. a, an infectious in, in exemplar. Mm. And so there was one job, half a job on that farm when we started. And now there's 27 jobs. Right. So just think of that red zone. Just think of all the jobs it could create. Just think of all the social enterprises, you know, youth, culture. Mm. Or, you know, just think of all the wealth, the, the wealth that could generate, the real wealth. Yeah, in, I hear what you're saying, that, that there's real potential to take a disaster and take what's resulted in this red zone area that's not being used productively yes. and to actually say turn it on its head and say well actually what could we learn and i and i'm guessing um what what you would say in answer to this question is you know what can we learn from what you've done you've you've done a few different initiatives yes. in the uk which seemed it sounds like they've been successful yes. and that they've worked so i'm guessing that one of the purposes of your visit is to say hey new zealand Maybe you could try some of these things as well. Well, perhaps. Although one of I, I, I would be hasten, I, I would be very modest about mm. suggesting things. That was an invitation, mm. more more of a suggestion. Yeah. Um, and I think I've oh, I've come to learn. You know, I've been at Project Littleton, for example, mm -hmm. and, and and Margaret Jeffries mm -hmm. and and her team have been really inspiring talked about community land trust there mm -hmm. because some ideas to take back and um, I visited um, a Rudolf Steiner school at Motueka okay and they've bought um, 12 hectares I think or 30, 35 acres something like that mm. and and it's quite near the sea you can see the sea uh, it's got a, and they're they're going to develop a farm school there they've mm. done a permacultural plan mm. So I thought that's just wonderful to learn from that, yeah. and that's going to go in one of our books on biodynamics and permaculture as Great. a case study. Yeah. So I've come here to learn. Mm. I think I, I feel a bit like a bumblebee, you know, 
sort of there's lots of honey here, lots of good projects to mm. learn from. Mm. And I hope there's a dialogue. Mm. So I hope some folks come and visit Stroud. Because mm. I think one development principle is learning with other communities around the planet mm. who are similarly engaged. Right. Makes sense. <laughs> and so you talked a little bit there just on your impressions of New Zealand. Is there anything else that stood out to you? in? Because you've been all up and down the country, haven't you? So what have been some other observations? Well, I use the image of, of the neoliberal uh, market state. Mm-hmm. It's a tarmac road and it's cracking up. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, we, 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 and the green shoots are happening everywhere. Positive things, social businesses, cultural projects, mm. um, political initiatives. And where are the green shoots happening? Are they happening in the cracks in the road and they they're are. coming up? Or are they, they are. off to the side? And off the road, yeah. ev- everywhere. Right. <laughs> and, and it's unstoppable, really. Mm. And I think the worse the crisis gets, like this, you know, how long will the f- financial system be stable? Mm. You know, it's, it's, it's rocky, isn't it? Mm. Mm. So I think I, I said to one community, Nelson, I think it was, you know, you, you got, if you've got money in a bank, it's not safe. It, 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 you know, you'll, you'll have a haircut, perhaps. Mm. Unlike Britain, we, our first 80,000 mm. is secure. Mm. Yours isn't, is it, mm. in a bank, don't mm. think. So, so why not invest in your community? Right. You know, so, you, you know, so, so being able to say things like that. But I think one, one conversation I had, actually it was on the first evening in Auckland, um, I naively asked this group, what's affecting New Zealand farming? And I, I, after about 10 minutes, you know, high rates of suicides, dirty dairying, polluted rivers, relaxation of environmental standards, foreign corporate ownership, mm-hmm. absentee farmers, collapse of rural communities. <laughs> it went on. I, the list I, went on. <laughs> I was so upset. Yeah. You know, I, I really felt like going in a corner and having a cry. I was so upset. Right. No, it, it didn't feel good. Mm. And perhaps I got a dismal picture because I've all also visited Mangarara Farm, which is run by an inspiring farmer called Greg Hart, who's a regenerative farmer. And he's on the board of the, um, new, the Land Trust New Zealand, which is this biodynamic land trust mm. um, that Carolyn Hughes, who organized my trip here, mm. is the chair of. Oh, wonderful. So there's some great examples here. Mm, mm. And we, we visited a... A 500-acre, I think it was, biodynamic farm in the Hawke's Bay area. Mm. And as soon as you drove in, you you felt good. The whole place was vibrant, vivid, alive. Mm. The animals were bristling Mm. with good health. Mm. And and, and that was real family farming. Mm. Amazing. Mm. And and so so that's one of, you know, I'll go away with that question. Mm. Um... And I can understand the economic pressures on farmers. Mm. It must be pretty tough. Mm. And the average age is, what, 60, 65? Mm. And, and um, so, you know, go over the question, how, how can New Zealand have a conversation mm. about a sustainable future for farming? Mm. Well, I like the way that you phrased all that because I asked the question, you've brought something that we can learn from, but you've turned it into, actually, I'm here to ask questions. I'm here to learn as I'm going around yes. the country. And um, what we'll do in the in the show notes is put some links maybe to some of the organizations that you've met so that if people are interested, they can find out more. Right. And just thinking back, you know, we've talked a lot uh, on various topics, but that word purpose, 
Um, how has it sort of played out in your life and, and what form is it taking today? It, it takes the form of um, questions, like perhaps from my Quaker background, I'm asking how can I be a generative elder? Mm-hmm. Not you know, do less things, and, but, but being generative. Mm. And I think, um, I think one, one big question I've got is, well, there's four questions actually. The first question is, how are we developing a more earth-caring society? Mm. So the value there is sustainability or earth care. Mm. So that's why I've got a, um, an animal, um, a water bottle that is, I don't know, 12 years old. So that saves thousands of plastic bottles. Right, yes. So it's, uh, and that's why I look after my allotment. Mm. I, I can't do that big things. Mm. But, so that's the first question. How are we looking after Mother Earth? Second question is how, the economic question. How are we developing um, a regenerative circular economy um, that works for everybody, that's based on mutuality? Um, and, and so that's the question of the old word fraternity or sisterhood or mutuality. Mm. So the, the neoliberal story is that it's dog-eat-dog, dog, it's social Darwinism, mm. it's competitive individualism. That's a lens they have. And that may be true of property development and Donald Trump and that, those sorts of folk. But normal business folk don't want to have anything to do with competitive individualists you know mm. n- you know no ordinary business people mm. of whatever stripe value cooperative mutual relationships mm. re- you know reliable suppliers quality yeah. delivery all that sort of yeah. stuff yeah it makes sense i was interviewing someone um, named dr john vargo from um, organizational resilience so they're here in christchurch and he was saying they'd done some studies of the businesses affected by the earthquakes and they were very heartened because they thought the number one concern would be loss of profit or business interruption. But the number one concern was actually for their employees and are our employees okay following this awful event? And and the researchers came away feeling quite encouraged that actually, generally, people do care about each other. So uh, they yeah. really do. Yeah. And, and and you know, your your people are, are the core of the business, aren't they? Mm, mm. And so so how are we developing a generative circular economy rather than a cowboy economy that wastes the earth mm. and and based on fr- mutuality mm. um and and the, the third question was how are we developing um a human rights based political system where there's participative as well as effective representative democracy where there's social inclusion mm. where there's equity whether our ownership arrangements for capital and land and Mm. etc are appropriately mm. shared mm. Um, so for example um, New Zealand doesn't have property taxes mm. so what about capital gains tax you know what about higher stamp duty what about mm. regulation of rentals you know secure tenancies mm-hmm. you know that all that sort of stuff as a way of delivering equity yeah. it's all, all very well to say that housing is a human right the right to decent, affordable, secure, warm housing, mm-hmm. but you, but the, the, it's the political system's job to make sure the resources are there to de- to deliver the housing, whether that's by social business or by um, the the civil society. You know, that, that's a choice. Mm. 
the yeah. state can do some of it. But, you know, so, so that's, yeah, so earth-caring, equitable and peaceful society. Mm. And, and from conflict research, we know that the more human rights are respected and implemented in a society, this is a bold statement, the less likely that society, the less violent that society, yeah, and the less likely to go to war. Mm. And that's, I know that's quite, quite a statement, but it's backed up by research. Mm, mm. So, and the, the fourth question is, how, how are we um, developing a creative cultural life? Universities, schools, health organizations, mm. art, science, spirituality, meaning, um, community, family mm. life. How we, it's incredibly va- various and diverse and plural, mm. isn't it? Mm. But how are we developing a such a creative cultural life that every person um, it is enabled to uh, realize their full potential mm. and also maintain that potential. Mm. So, for example, in the, the na- we have the National Health Service in the, in the UK, which historically has been an autonomous, um, if you like, health and culturally led organization. So it's kind of doctor and medically led. Mm. The political system guarantees the right to health and the resources and and it's delivered economically yeah so so that you know that's a way of seeing things but those four questions do, yeah do they, and and, fr- and no, freedom it makes sense is, and the, the thing that uh, the thing that i love about everything that you've been saying and talking and i think it will be really challenging for some people to be listening to this yes is that the the you know the neoliberal thinking or th- that different way of thinking which is very common is often about profit Yes. How many zeros are on the end of that check that you're writing me? Because I want it for my own gain personally. Yes. Because I want to buy a better house and I want another car. You know, like there, that mindset. But I, what I love about what you've been talking about is this, this idea, you know, coming back to that word, was it common wheel? Mm. The, the idea that there's more to it than just profit, that there's actually other dimensions to life that we need to be thinking through and and be encouraging and and that's what i've taken from our conversation you know that there's there's a, a depth there that we need to get beyond just the focus on how much money am i going to make this year yes and can you just explain a little bit about your quaker roots or traditions what are some of the things that you think that other people could learn from that tradition um firstly you can't take it with you you know so so how are you going to arrange your affairs so that they're not a burden on others you know what's your giveaway Mm -hmm. i think that's important um and secondly um walking we've got this old phrase i know it sounds quaint walking joyfully through the world respecting that that of god in every human being and so that that's a that sort of attitude Mm -hmm. Uh, thirdly a concern for peace so so really how do we build a more peaceful society Mm -hmm. And that's a question of social justice and respecting the planet and a, a convivial social life and mm. enabling everybody to achieve their potential. Because mm. if they don't, just think of the costs of that. Mm. So, so I, could go, I could go on. Yeah, <laughs> I'm sure there's many things. <laughs> but it's helpful to hear that because I think it, it resonates so clearly with all the other messages that you've had. And, mm. and that's great because there's a consistent approach and... You know, this podcast is all about purpose and talking with people who are doing things that are trying to offer alternative ways of viewing the world. And so my hope for it is that we can hear from different voices 
that everybody has a different story and that we can take bits and pieces and and maybe change the way that we think of the world as well. And I, I'm sure anybody who's listening, the next time they hear the word commonwealth, yes, they're definitely going <laughs> to be thinking of different things. So, well, I know you're only in Christchurch for a day, I think, and I've somehow managed to have you um, speak with me for a whole hour. So I really appreciate your time. And um, I, I think the listeners will listen and be challenged. So thank you for coming in today. So thank you. And there's no wealth but life. Thank you. Well, I think you'll agree that that conversation with Martin had a lot of very interesting and challenging topics that we covered, and I hope you enjoyed it. In the next episode, we're going to be speaking with Emmeline Pat Dostrom, who has had a lifelong love of space, and she works as a space consultant. So we're going to be talking with her all about space, the space industry, whether there's a rivalry between Star Trek and Star Wars fans, or whether you can be both and also some of the other things that she's been involved with over the years, including the Singularity University. Here's an excerpt from the interview with her. For me, it's interesting. I actually really, really believe that we are going to be a multiplanetary species. I see us, you know, uh, on the other side of the moon. I see us, like, really uh, colonizing um, other uh, planets around the solar system. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's like something that's going to be brought about if we actually act now towards that future. I hope you enjoyed the episode today, and please continue to tell others about this podcast if you think they might enjoy it. Until next time.